This episode of The Agronomist is brought to you by FMC Preschool, The Weed School, and Adama Canada. While other sources of innovation run dry and fail to understand your needs, Adama is here to deliver. And we're all in on you. Talk to your Adama sales rep today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Agronomist. Bernard Tobin here. I am your host tonight. Um, Sitting in for Lindsay Smith, um, some big agronomic shoes to fill here, but I'm going to give it a shot and try my best. Um, see, we've already got a great group uh, gathering online. Welcome, everybody. Um, lots of activity here. Um, get your questions ready. Get your comments ready. And uh, throughout the night, I'll be uh, digging in to uh, the chat and we'll tackle some of those questions and some comments um, and a final housekeeping. And as a reminder that CEU credits are available, um, just head on over to realagriculture.com slash agronomists to apply for your credit. Um, <clears throat> hey, the topic for tonight, we have uh, a great show. We are going to be talking yen. That is Yield Enhancement Networks, um, more specifically the Great Lakes Yield Enhancement Network, which was a uh, you know which is has produced some great work on growing uh, wheat here in the region. Um, I think I first heard uh, about Yen at the Southwest Ag Conference back in 2020. That's when uh, uh, ADAS um, crop researcher Ruth Wade shared uh, you know how UK farmers. Um, and researchers have been, you know, forming these networks to share and learn about, you know, how to grow crops. And uh, since then, you know, the Great Lakes Yen uh, was launched uh, through the efforts of the Grain Farmers of Ontario, uh, Michigan State University, um, let's see, Michigan Wheat, uh, the Michigan Wheat Program, the Ontario Ministry of uh, Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs, and the University of Guelph. Um, we now have two years of experience under our belts, and a third year of that program uh, is just about to get underway. And, uh, you know, I think we're going to see some bigger and better results. Um, so let's get this thing going. Um, to talk yen uh, tonight, I, you know, and what we've learned so far, I have two guests. Um, first up, we have Michigan State University Wheat system specialist Dennis Pennington. Hi, Dennis. How's it going? Great. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Uh, we had Dennis on uh, the wheat school earlier this season um, to talk yen, and uh, we had a great discussion with Peter. Uh, and we're going to dig a little deeper on that. Here are some stories from Michigan and what you've been hearing from talking to all these growers this winter. And of course, my second guest is uh, none other than. Wheat Pete himself, uh, real agriculture agronomist Peter Johnson. Hey Pete, um, I'm uh, I'm sure uh, I guess a team of wild horses couldn't kept you couldn't have kept you away from this tonight. So I am in Idaho Falls, Idaho tonight, and I had to drag all my equipment with me to be on tonight. And I could have flown home tonight, but oh. nope, I'm staying an extra night just so that I can hear what Dennis has to say about the Great Lakes Yen. Dennis is the guru of the Great Lakes Yen, and it's going to be a fun night. Awesome, awesome. I've seen lots of chat already uh, i see lindsey smith has pointed out that we have new music tonight so the, the important things are, are are in the chat and we will we will dig into that gentlemen i want to kick this off uh with some thoughts on on, on the general in excitement enthusiasm you know for this program um, it started in 2021 with 43 growers grew to 98 growers in 2022 and i think it's about to balloon to 170 growers for 2023. Dennis, you know, what does that tell you about this program? Yeah, there's been a lot of interest from growers and when they see the report and the information that they get out of this, uh, there's a lot of value. Uh, it does take a lot of work and effort to put in all the data into the system that we have as well as collect all the samples. But uh, if you wanna learn more about how to grow wheat and learn more about your wheat crop, this is a program for you because this will force you to get out in your field and walk it. Um, and it'll force you to look at it from a perspective that maybe you haven't looked at before. Yeah. Now, Peter, um, 
I'm going to put up a slide here because I want to ask you your opinion. And, you know, uh, you know, have you seen anything like this, you know, in Ontario? You've been around wheat a long, long time. Um, much longer and, than me. And much longer than Dennis and certainly longer than me. But, you know, I mean, this, this, you know, as this slide shows, this program has been, you know, part of a world record. You know, you know how do you view this? Yeah, so this this really sets research on its ear, Burn, and I love the concept because we used to do all this small plot research, and it, small plot research is great, but we always pick a uniform piece of ground, and not every farmer's field is uniform, and farmers often know best. So that's exactly what this this program does: is the farmer does their best in in the field it's not just a yield contest every time you run a yield contest the doggone dairy farmers win because they've got manure and they've got alfalfa in the rotation and you can't stink and beat them but this looks at percent of yield potential and so now everything changes and Tim Lammyman, this is the new world record holder in the UK just said it this past August, August of 2022, and 267.8 bushels per acre. That's nine bushels better than the previous record. He did it on just, just over a pound of nitrogen per bushel. He talks about roots. He talks about stay green, how he got there, but he talks about the yen. It's the 10th year anniversary of the wheat yen in the UK. That's where it all started. And he credits the yen with helping him understand the science of growing wheat better. And because he could understand the science, the, the presentation I gave today here in Idaho Falls, one of the growers said, you know, I always thought that farming was an art, but I've learned that it's really the art that we talk about is just science that I don't understand yet. And so this is so cool that we can take take the science and bring it to the farmer in his situation, her situation, and that that some of those farmers can then turn around and make a brand new Guinness World Book of Records. That is incredible. Um, gentlemen, we have 2021 and 2022. I want to take a quick look at each, both years. We've got a lot of ground to cover. Um, Pete, um, give us another slide here, Jay. Next slide. Pete, tell us about 2021, um, you know, about that year of big potential. Oh, yeah. So the fall of 2020 was unbelievably great. The wheat was still growing on Christmas Day. You could, how often does that happen? So for growers that planted early, we had this massive wheat crop in the field. And you can see 14 tillers on that plant. Man, most of the time, if we get two tillers per plant, we think we've really done something. But it was such an open fall. The next spring, Johnson was out there saying, yeah, baby, we got the world by the tail here. We are going to manage this wheat crop, 30 pounds more nitrogen. We're going to need growth regulators. Throw the kitchen sink at it. It's the year to throw the kitchen sink at it. Uh, dang it. <laughs> then, of course, we got into June. And up until June, everything was great. And then the wheat headed out, and Mother Nature decided that it was a year that we should go extremely hot. And all of a sudden, we took this great wheat crop, we jammed her down into, you know, a shorter than normal grain fill period. And even though we had incredible potential, the outcome was, yeah, it was, it was good, but it was not the record that Johnson, Johnson was expecting. Uh, yes, I remember that story well. Um, Next slide for me, Jay, here. I'm going to ask Dennis. Dennis, tell us a little bit about 2022. Um, and this is an Ontario slide, obviously, but um, it's a very similar story in Michigan. Yeah, so uh, the 2022 crop started out um, with with a little bit of difficulty. If you remember back to, to planting that crop uh, in the fall, uh, and we did on the U.S. side of things, too. We had a lot of rain. And so, um, you know, tile run wheat is kind of what you see in this picture and in the next picture there. And right over the tile run, the wheat looks great. And then in between, it looked terrible. Um, it looked like it was going to die. It wasn't going to survive the winter. Um, but... 
you know, remarkably, it uh, did fare through the winter. And, you know, our young growers in 2022, uh, we had an, another, a high yield this year, uh, higher than what we've had in the end before at uh, 165 bushel yield. So we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But uh, yeah, it started out kind of poor. Uh, you know, when it has all that rainfall, it's just, it's really hard. Wheat doesn't like its wheat fat or feet wet rather. Mm. And uh, so yeah, we, we, it, it looked kind of bad, but it ended up not being quite as bad as what we thought it was going to be. Yeah, show us that yeah, next slide, Jay. I, I I want to jump in it for a minute because man, this is the this is the exact opposite of twenty the twenty twenty one crop. Spring of twenty twenty two, Johnson is telling all his clients, uh, she's mediocre at best, baby. Like, look at that wheat. There's no yeah. way we've got a big wheat crop here. And so instead of pushing it, we all sort of backed off, and then. We got a night, we got cold nights, or not cold, but cool nights all the way through June. June, those cool nights just yeah. extended that grain fail period. And Dennis, we set a new record wheat yield in the province of Ontario in 2022, 99.7 bushels per acre with a crop that that this guy that's been working yeah. for with wheat forever thought was in the tank before we even started. So it uh, shows you how much I know about wheat, right? Oh yeah, yep. just I know nothing. Dennis knows everything. I know nothing. Well, I uh, don't know about that. I want to want to just let's just hop ahead and next slide there, Jay, and let's look at some of the results. Um, and Dennis, maybe you want to take have a look at this. Sure. I mean, you've been, you've been watching and been a big part of this program for two years. You know, here's that year one, year two comparison. You know. Um, Two different years, um, a lot of different growers. Um, what do you see? Yeah, you know, honestly, I hadn't really took much of a deep dive or look into the yen project from year one compared to year two. Um, so, you know, I wanted to do that for tonight's show. And so here's some of the data up here on the screen. Um, you'll find some things that are like uniquely close and some things that are not so close. Um, so let's just kind of spend a few minutes and go through them. There's a lot of stuff in here to kind of look at and sort through and think about and kind of go, hmm, and, you know, why did that happen? Um, so in the first column, there's grain yield bushel per acre. In the first year of the program, the overall average of the 43 growers uh, was 115 bushels. In year two, it was 116. Now, the caveat there, notice in 2000 or in 2022, uh, we had 98 farms and look at the geography. You know, we picked up quite a bit of geography here uh, that we didn't have uh, in the first year of the program. So a little bit more regional variability, um, but all in all, still the yield potential was, I was actually surprised it was within one bushel of each, of, of each other from the, from the first and second year of the program. Yeah, but, and it, so I think as you, as you carry through that, right? So even though the, the final yield potential was one bushel apart, the potential yield we were 23 yeah. bushels apart and, and you go, wow. And part of that is geography for sure. And, and Dennis, that's a great point. But, and, and if anyone hasn't figured out the top line is 2021, the bottom line is 2022. Yep. So, so just yep. to be clear, cause that's not marked, but, but wow, the, the, like that's a, that's a 10% difference in yield potential. And we end up with less than 1% difference in actual yield. Kind of a, like, scratch your head how you'd end up there. Yeah, and you would think with all those hot days that, you know, the total biomass column there, um, we actually produced more biomass in the second year of the program than we did in the first year. Um, and then another thing that was a bit surprising was that incident solar radiation. So we actually had more solar radiation. Now, maybe this ties to the hot days we had, too. So hot days usually are sunny days, not cloudy. So on, on uh, sunny days, you know, you get that uh, more solar radiation. Um, and, and that was, you know, 3% higher or so, or, or like 3 uh, terajoules per hectare higher. So that, that's a fair amount higher in the incident solar radiation, but it didn't translate into higher yields. Yeah, 15%. Um, Right. Sorry, Dennis, Bird. Go ahead. You no, know, I was going to say, um, Dennis, I want to yeah. jump in here. Um, Brett asked the question: How do you determine yield potential or potential yield? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, potential yield is determined as the crop's ability to take up resources, including sunlight and water, and convert that into biomass, and then during the grain field period, convert that biomass um, into grain 
using a harvest index. So we use a number of calculations. Uh, we use the total amount of water available to the crop, and that is calculated as what's available in the soil, plus the rainfall from green up into physiological maturity. Um, and then we also uh, use the uh, uh, total biomass accumulated uh, by the crop and, and then kind of do some calculations, kind of figuring backwards the math using harvest index. We assume a harvest index of 58%. Um, and so if we know we produced a certain amount of biomass, we can go back and calculate it with a harvest index of 58%. 58% of that weight is green and we can and there, thereby get the, uh, the yield of the crop. So um, it's just kind of a fancy calculation. We're following exactly the formula that they use in the UK. In the UK, they are getting um, percent of yield potential up to 100 to 101%. They have some growers that are achieving 100% of their yield potential. So it's remarkable. We still have a ways to go um, here. If you compare, you know, the grain yield in the first column there to the potential yield in the second column, you can see we got a long ways to go um, to catch up there. Yeah. Any more and thoughts the way, on this? Oh yeah, but before we leave this, uh, the barley yen winner in the UK this year was 131% of yield potential. And yeah, you see, just that's go, remarkable, isn't it? Well, it's remarkable, and you also kind of go, okay, so the algorithm isn't quite right because there's no way we should be able to get more than a hundred percent of yield potential. Sure. But so the other the other thing I want to point out, and I think it speaks to the difference in the two years. So yeah, potential yield at 220, but look at the harvest index in 2021. We're down at 45%. So going into grain fill. We had these massive crops. Like I would walk fields and they, the wheat tri yeah. uh, plants would trip me. You could not get off the tram line because you'd end up on your face. They were that thick. But then the short, short and grain fill period, even with the big crop out there, we ended up with a mediocre yield. Conversely, in 2022, you know, that grain fill period, it just we got so much higher harvest index that even without, you know, much more total biomass and, and the total biomass number there is still surprises me that it was more than it was in 21. But regardless, that higher harvest index ends up translating into equal yields. So just so many things to look at that and scratch your head and say, wow, it's cool data. There's no question. Yeah. I want to, let's, let's, let's slide on to the next slide, Jay, um, for some indiv individual um data here we got we've got uh jeff cook obviously and andy uh timmermans peter what do you see here i mean uh you know two uh, some different numbers here and, and also in in contrast with the norm and the range yeah and so so actually nor so these are three growers jeff crone the mm -hmm. the number one uh grower this year andy timmermans number two and norm woodbeck oh, sorry. Uh, or sorry right, norm this... lamoth rather L L norm lamoth these are these are the 2022 the... sorry these are the 2022 yeah norm lamoth from from uh, central ontario and so norm's in there because he's been in the program both years and yen uh, these are our wow wheat people from the ontario ag conference presentation and we brought norm in because he said look I learned so much in 2021 and I applied that to 2022 and it had a big impact on my final outcome. So even though he wasn't a winner, it just kind of gave us that flavor of how much yen can help your management. And yeah, you look at like the heads per meter squared there that Jeff has 1200 heads per meter squared. Uh, gosh, I mean, even there's some discussion that our heads per meter squared might not be 100% accurate. Uh, it's, a, it's a calculation, right, Dennis? So at least they're yeah. relative. If nothing else, they're relative. Th that is a massive number. Just And look at the range on heads per meter squared. As low as, like, is, I can't believe that number is real, Dennis. 280 heads per square meter. That that sounds yeah. like the pallets or triangle in, in <laughs> Saskatchewan kind of head counts or, or even below that for crying out loud. Yeah, but, you know, it's important to show what these ranges are because these are real numbers on real farms um, in this program this year. And so, you know, when you try to point at, you know, what is the thing that gives these high yield guys the high yield, you try to figure out, okay, is it biomass? Is it heads per meter squared? Is it seeds per meter squared? Thousand kernel weight. You, you try to bring it all together. And what you find out is there's not one single answer. There's It's, it's a combination of management um, and things that they do, that growers do, 
that make the yields the high yields. Um, but, you know, like you said, I've talked to Jeff about that 1,230 number. He's like, oh, my God, that's way too high. I shouldn't be having that many heads. Look at my 1,000 kernel weight. I'm only at 27. You know, I should be up at 40, you know, but because I have so many uh, heads, my 1,000 kernel weight is suffering. So, you know, he wants to bring that number down. Well, I'm I'm just wanting to get to his 167 or whatever bushels, 168 bushel wheat, right? Like, like I'll take the yeah. the the low thousand kernel weight if it means big bushels. Yeah, but right. I, I think right, I think right. the range really is amazing, and uh, like it, it just it boggles my brain that we can get those kind of ranges in in biomass. Like that's 6,500 to 21 thousand that's three times right like three times the amount of biomass same with heads per meter squared that's almost five times the the number of heads per meter squared and it it all just shows that every grower has a different opportunity and it's really about maximizing that opportunity so uh, yeah i think that's just cool stuff Fine. Yeah. In question. Bi- sorry, I was going to ask you about seeds per meter squared. What's the story with Norm's low number here, guys? Well, I think the um, I don't know that twenty six thousand is necessarily no, that low. low of a number. Um, but in uh, notice, his thousand kernel weight was thirty compared to twenty seven. So you know you got to add these factors together to come up with your total yield. Um, you know, he had a lower number of heads per meter squared, but I mean, you got to look at other management things like, you know, seeding rates, planting dates, um, fertilizer applications, fungicide. Did he have any diseases? Was there water limitations? I mean, there's a lot of other factors that you have to consider here. Um, you know, he, uh, you know, you might say, oh, well, gosh, 26,000, that's low. He had 135 bushel yield. Um, yeah. uh, that's not it, a bad crop. And, and it's exactly goes back to what what Dennis said about Jeff and his 27. So Norm's thousand kernel weights, a full 10% higher than either Jeff or Andy. And if you add 10% to his seeds per meter squared to kind of even it out, we're at 30,000 seeds per meter squared. So like, again, as Dennis said, it's really the combination of things. And that's, what's cool about this program is we get to look at this combination of things and, and try to sort things out. And, you know, the other thing that's cool about this is these guys are willing to share this data with each other. You know, you look at some of these other yield contests that are out there and they might tell you a few things they're doing, but everybody here wants to share what they're doing and learn from each other. So that that's what, that's the coolest thing to me about this whole program is it some of the, some of the high yield, like this. some of the high yield corn guys will not give mm-hmm. their secrets up no matter how much money you pay them and here we're giving secrets yeah. out for free it's yeah. it's kind yeah, of a cool right, process right. speaking of sharing um i want to go back i'm, I'm, I'm now going to get to jeff cook um i want to go back to 2021 here pete this is an interview that you did we're going to play our first clip um uh, talking with jeff about his nitrogen strategy really really interesting let's roll that one roll that one jay The other things that maybe stands out to me that we did different from some of the other growers was our, our kind of nitrogen management, planting date, uh, split application strategy. And, and a lot of that boils down to managing lodging and, and how much nitrogen we can get into those plants without running the risk of lodging. So um, the one thing um, would be our, our rotation. So Coming out of uh, green beans in this case, um, we've got a lot of that uh, residue and timing that mineralization, there is a lot of uh, added nitrogen in that system. Um, And so we kind of have to work with our split applications to kind of manage that in in terms of managing lodging and and risk to lodging and and getting more nitrogen into that plant. So we've gone, in this case, we went to a three pass nitrogen application strategy where we put a little bit uh, on early with some sulfur and then came back uh, with a liquid application and then again with uh, another dry application at uh, Flagley. Yep and so that's I mean first off rotation 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 but after green beans gives you a leg up and what's interesting is you had two different entries in the yen and the second entry was after white beans which most of us would die to have wheat after white beans but your 
wheat after green beans, your uh, snap beans actually yielded about 10 bushels per acre more than even after white beans to hit that 148 and 100%. So you get that nitrogen credit. So just give us a little more specifics if you can. You, you said three applications. The first one, when do you put it on? How much? The second one, the third one, just time us. Yeah, sure. So the first one would be just some ammonium sulfate dry product, maybe a hundred pounds. Um, usually we target that on, like on the frost in March, end of March or something. I think in this case, it was actually uh, towards the end of March, maybe early April, um, not on the frost. It was actually fairly dry. And then um, just depending on the weather and, and timing and that, and if we've had maybe some early warm weather and gotten a lot of mineralization that's maybe when we push that second application back a little bit um, so that we're not running that larger risk of lodging um, and then we kind of tailor that um, that amount of and um, depending on the stand we've got there so tiller count something like that as well and uh, I'm kind of going by gut right now I'd, lo I'd love to put a little more science to it and, and get some tiller counts and come up with a formula but we haven't got that far yet, but uh, maybe in time. Uh, and then um, just coming back with the balance at flag leaf, kind of when you're getting um, kind of beyond that lodging risk uh, uh, plant growth stages and, and can get more into the head, I guess. Yeah. And, and so that's really interesting, uh, your tiller count. So how much would you put on? I mean, if you put 100 pounds of ammonium sulfate up front, that's 20 mm -hmm. pounds of nitrogen, 21. So then when you come back on, say, April 20th or somewhere in that range, how much would you put on it? And does it make a difference how much you put on there from a lodging standpoint? Sure. Yeah. So I think depending and I kind of had a, a rough formula. And so at that time on this site, we uh, did uh, about 20, 22 gallons of 28 percent, I think. And that was right in that April 20th or so, maybe a little earlier. Um, I think the earlier we go, maybe we we'll want to back that off a bit and kind of put a little more to that uh, last application, just in terms of managing lodging. Um, and then, of course, uh, yeah, the flag leaf application, we used uh, Amidas, maybe 120 pounds or so of product. So, uh, so yeah, that for the balance of the nitrogen, which I think in this case was 132 total pounds of N, so not a lot when you're talking about kind of pushing yields. Our sponsors for this episode of The Agronomists are Adama Canada, The Weed School, and FMC Preschool. FMC Preschool is an education and stewardship extension of FMC Canada with a firm mandate to educate and bring value to customers and stakeholders regarding proactive weed control and resistance management best practices. For product agnostic weed management content, visit www.fmcpreschool.com. fmcpreschool.com, your knowledge, your business, your success. Yeah, some interesting strategy there from uh, Jeff. What's, uh, what, what's really interesting as well is that, hey, lodging in 2021 was such a big issue. And then it's off the, basically off the table in 2021, uh, 2022. Pete, you know, how does that strategy work in, in, in one year versus the other? Yeah, so again here, Bern, I think Yen is helping us fine-tune that uh, and the other cool thing about about yen is that all of a sudden people are are interested in wheat they're excited about wheat and i'm a little surprised that the people in the chat aren't asking more questions yeah. like get with the program here ask questions but <laughs> I, I think what happens there is that we we learn how to better manage and i this tiller counts that jeff talked about so critical and it's sort of new to us. We've talked about it before, but we've never really tracked it well enough. And it's not just tiller count or stem count. It's also soil type. It's manure history. Like growers are starting to learn how much more there is involved from that standpoint and, and figure out how to manage nitrogen to keep the crop standing and use a growth regulator if they need it for sure. We look at that as well, but but this nitrogen management strategy, and one of the things about Yen that they learned in the UK that I, that I think is really showing up here, and maybe Dennis was going to get to this at the end, but it, it really is about never letting the crop slow down. You want it to get going, and, and this, this uh, 
I don't know, spoon feeding, if you will, or, or a, a few, like not just one application of nitrogen really helps keep that crop at top efficiency, top, like pedal to the metal kind of thought process to get the highest wheat yields possible. Dennis, yeah, any, so, any thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. What I was going to say is that uh, we, we've got to manage the crop for what we see out in the field. And every season is different. We all know that. And every field might be even a little bit different. Um, but knowing you know, what to look for in the field and, and how to make that decision about should I put a little bit more nitrogen on early or should I push it off a little bit late, that that takes a little bit of experience then knowing what the crop is and then being in your crop and looking at it and paying attention to it. Um, so many times I've heard guys say that, oh, I used to plant wheat in the fall and then I've never come back to it until I pulled in the field with a combine. It's like, oh my gosh, well, how do you expect to get higher yields, you know? So you've got to manage the crop and you've got to be paying attention to it in order to know what to do with it. So, yeah, those tiller counts are important. Um, You've you got to know what the history of uh, the the ability of the, the soil to provide additional nitrogen through mineralization. You've got to know what that cropping history is um, because the the nutrient uptake uh, uh, or, or the nitrogen uh, utilization per pound or per a bushel of yield is all over the board in this in this program. We have some guys that are way over applying nitrogen, and we have some guys that have perhaps been more conservative, um, but they're getting that mineralization uh, that has caused them. I mean, their their nitrogen use efficiency is is very very high as a result. So um, it's it's about paying attention and managing that crop, but not just expecting it to kind of survive and thrive it on its own. You've got to get out there um, and and pay attention to the to business. Yeah. Hey, I want to dodge over to the uh, to the uh, chat because Peter, everybody's uh, you have stirred the pot there. I see uh, Dr. Dave Hooker. Dr. Dave Hooker has come in here and he said, you know, could you guys really outline outline how yen can help drive yields over and above existing recs records? Yeah, and so I'll jump in there if if you don't mind, Dennis, because I think it's a great question. Yeah. But I think it's exactly what we talked about. All of a sudden, so. I mean, the grower could do this on their own, but they just don't. You join the yen and you sort of are given this protocol. Take a tissue sample now, get a soil test, and and then get the grain sample. And we'll see, uh, hopefully towards the end, we'll see how, how, man, sometimes your soil test and your fertilizer application still doesn't end up putting you where you expect to be. So it's adding the science and the monitoring to the crop that, on their own farms that growers otherwise probably don't always do. And there's a few growers. I mean, Andy Timmermans, he's out in his wheat field, whether it's yen or not. But a lot of growers, this this gives them another layer of information that really helps fine tune. Is the nitrogen rate too high? Do I need three fungicides? What, what are those parameters? I, I think it's just really an incredible step forward. Dennis, any yeah, thoughts on that? I would add... Yeah, I would add to that. Uh, I think the yen can help uh, in in just providing information because honestly, uh, you look at the the amount of private resources that go into corn and soybean research and development. Um, there, there are so many resources that are provided for those crops. And what do we have for wheat? Um, it's a few of us uh, wing nuts uh, that work in the wheat area that uh, love the crop. And there's we think the that the there's night. potential for this thing. And so, uh, you know, it, it's providing the information to growers so that they can say, okay, this is what happened in this year. I know what the weather was. I know how my crop acted. Now let's put some numbers in it behind what happened to the nutrition of the crop. Um, what happened to my yield components on the crop? What was my yield potential? So I know, and then next year I can maybe make a few changes on the farm. Then we're going to track those changes again next year. What were the impacts of those? And over time, we can start to see a pattern uh, where we're starting to raise the bar higher and higher um, on these farms. But it's all about information. And if you don't have good information, how do you make good decisions? So uh, we, we've got to collect that information. Uh, and, and what's cool is that these, these guys are willing to collect not only their own, but they're sharing it with each other. Yeah, a couple of things from the chat. You know, uh, Farmer Schneck basically says, you know, a few – Collecting those t- tissue tests, uh, those tissue samples are key. Um, they've uh, they do it a few times a year. And I want to go want to head west to 
to talk uh, about Jason's question here. And he asks, you know, basically, what can we take in Western Canada from the Western wheat yen and incorporate it in the spring wheat in the West? Peter. Yeah, I think that's a great question, Jason. And at the end of the day, the yield parameters are all the same, whether it's spring or it's winter wheat. And I think what the winter wheat yen here in the Great Lakes region could help with in terms of spring wheat in Manitoba, Minnesota, North Dakota would be to say, okay, here's the things that we've found to be important. So give them a try in spring wheat. The other thing, Jason, because I think it's an excellent question that I have not done and I should do is we should go look at the UK yen because they have a winter wheat yen, they have a spring wheat yen. And so we could actually look at the differences that they've found between their two uh, growth habits of winter wheat and say, hmm, so this is more important in winter wheat and less in spring wheat. But I, I still think there's a whole bunch of things. I, the, I mean, we're going to get to it, but the one quite, quite easily shows up is planting date. That's going to play whether it's fall, like winter wheat in the fall, spring wheat in the spring, phosphorus fertilization. There's a bunch of things I think that, that do cross over, but do they all cross over? I, I don't think we know. Hmm. Hey, um, yeah. we've got a lot of ground to cover. Uh, Dennis, I'm going to scoot ahead. Is that all right? Um, I want to because uh, we're going to have to do two shows, uh, which is which is great. Um, Jay, give me uh, give me the next slide there on biomass, and uh, you know another big story. Um, let me see. Are we? At, oh, no, we're on the yield potential. Oh, there we go. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I'm biomass here. I mean, a, a big. Uh, a big story, Dennis, last year and the year before. I mean, it, it really is become a you know a consistent part of your results. Yeah, you know, so this slide is showing a comparison of the top twenty compared to the bottom twenty growers within that group of ninety eight in that yen project. Um, and the idea behind doing this comparison was just to say, okay, the guys that really got the high yield, what what are they doing, or what's different about them compared to guys that didn't get such a high yield. Um, and, and so in here, you can see the, the comparison for total biomass and the grains per meter squared. And you can see that these two things are pretty important in terms of the total yield. Um, higher biomass crop um, is the thing that is has the highest correlation out of all the factors with yield um, that we're testing for in the yen or all that we're collecting. So that uh, high biomass, the large crop, you know, like Peter talked about getting started in, in the 21 crop, you know, had that huge biomass and then it fell short with harvest index, had the hot weather and just wasn't able to convert the, the biomass into grain yield. Um, but a high biomass crop is very, very important. The second thing is the number of grains per meter squared. There's a lot of factors in management that affect that number. Things like uh, planting date, seeding rate, um, row spacing, um, all of those things impact uh, your final grains per meter squared. But of course, you know, the more grains that you can harvest, um, the higher your yield potential is. So what are the farms doing that are doing that? I, I think it's actually, you know, the guy that got the highest yield, uh, Jeff, he, he planted on five inch row spacing at 800,000 seeds per acre on five inch uh, on the five inch row spacing and he planted you know of course on time um i wouldn't say early but on time so um he, he was able to get some some really high numbers i think his greens per meter squared was up at uh thirty thousand plus so um all all those factors contribute here yeah he was thirty two thousand and some grains per per meter squared and I, and i think the biomass thing to me that that's sort of expected because grain like gr grain weight is just a percentage of total biomass so we if, if that relationship didn't hold you'd say boy there's there's something wrong in this data set or or we don't understand things but i think burn if we could go back one slide I'd, yeah. i would really like to 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 talk briefly about that because i think it's so this to me really shows the impact of you the grower and I love this slide and it's really the, the, the left-hand column as you look at that screen. Again, the green is the top 20, the blue is the bottom 20% of growers. And remember, it's a big geography. Every area is different. So you got to take it carefully. But a 50 bushel difference in yield. And yet when you look at the next two bars on yield potential, 198 to 193 that's a 
five bushel difference in yield potential. So the top growers were basically able to take five bushel more yield potential and turn it into 50 bushel more yield. And similarly, their percent of yield potential, you know, you go from 47% yield potential to 70% of yield potential. And, and this is what excites me is you look at these growers and say, how did they do that? How can I mirror that? And can I, can I get to be one of those growers that is at 70, 75, 80% yield potential instead of 50 or 60% yield potential? Um, let's uh, let's head over to the chat. Um, a question from Rob Miller over there, guys. Um, you know, other than applying in the rain, heavy dew, what are some strategies to reduce nitrogen burn when applied at flag leaf? Um, you know, what's the max to apply at that stage? Pete, Dennis, oh, you, you want to go first, Dennis? You did some trials on this. Yeah, sorry, I it, the internet was cutting in and out. I didn't oh. quite hear the question. It well, is, it's up uh, on so the screen there. Dennis. Up on the screen. So I'll, I'll start. I'll start while Dennis. So, so first off, Rob, be careful with on dew because on dew can actually be bad. If the dew is heavy enough that when you put it on dew, those drops roll off the leaf, then it, it's a help. But if it's just damp enough that when that 28% hits the leaf, and it actually spreads out more. Sometimes we actually see more burn on just a little bit of dew than we do on dry leaves. On dry leaves, the 28% the droplets use big droplets. They hit that leaf. They tend to bounce off. And then we don't see as much leaf burn as we sometimes get on just a little bit of dew. So it, it really does depend on how much dew is on, whether dew is a good thing or a bad thing. Doing it late in the evening, for sure, when the temperature is lower and you're not going to get that heat of the sun to really drive that that burn potential, uh, evaporate the liquid in the 28% droplet and that salt concentration goes through the roof, that helps as well. But in terms of products, Dennis, you've, you've done the most work on adding products to 28%. So what did you find there? Anything? Yeah, so we did um, some trial work where we applied uh, some granular fertilizers as well as some liquid fertilizers. Um, and, you know, we did everything from like Coron, Max Impact, uh, 28%, or just straight 28%. Um, we tried a number of different products. And really, the, the 28% um, is the one that caused the most amount of burn. Uh, if you have the ability to get across your acres with a with a dry granular fertilizer, you have the least amount of risk. Um, in fact, I think you heard Jeff Cook in his clip say that he spread um, Amidas. Um, I know another grower that's doing Amidas uh, over the, at the flag leaf timing as well. Um, and he has the ability, he's got a Amazon spread or Amazon spreader set up that can spread the same width as his um, sprayer track. So he doesn't have to make different tracks the field. Uh, so if you're going to put late nitrogen on at flag leaf, uh, you got to make sure you're, you're protecting it from burn. Um, and it's really hard to get 28% on without some burn um, unless you're doing it in the rain. And, and actually in the rain is probably an ideal situation. Um, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Good and stuff. so Dave, Dave Hooker, uh, if you're Dave, if you're asking is yen a good, a good research way to, to address 28% burn on wheat, not a chance. That is not what it's designed to do. So, so that's a hundred percent right on from that perspective. Yep. yep. I'm going to scoot ahead. Um, Jay, let's move ahead to the uh, heads per meter squared slide. That's so we got to skip the next one and then get on down to that. There we go. Yeah. Uh, here we go. Yeah. Yep. So, I mean, Really interesting slide here. You know, heads per meter squared, Peter, in the year, the first year, was the big conversation, you know. And uh, overall, the numbers, you know, were, were not as huge in 2022. But, you know, but, but it's certainly, you know, it's certainly driving those yields. Yeah. And, and so, again, it makes sense that we need more heads per meter squared, particularly if we aren't going to be like the UK and have 50 grains per head. The UK has 50 grains per head. And I know there's been a few questions in, in the chat around the differences in the UK wheat crop versus the Canadian wheat crop or the Michigan wheat crop, uh, you know, the Great Lakes area. So we, we need more heads. What's really been the big surprise out of this is when you look at all the different yield components, 
heads per meter squared, grains per head. Like you look at everything. The one that really jumps out at you is if you want bigger yields, it seems like we need high head counts. That we don't need high enough head counts that we make it all lodge because you get too many heads, it's going to fall over. But low head counts, just we can't seem to make the grains big enough in our climate to compensate for really low head counts. So you get down to 600 heads per, per meter squared, I, you're probably going to struggle to get some of those bigger bigger yields. And it is, it is a, a correlation. It is not causation. Dave Hooker put that in the chat as well. And so everybody listening tonight, these are, these are indicators. They're thought processes to get your head around and say, I should try that. It is not side-by-side research that says statistically heads per meter squared is the answer. It's, it just doesn't work like that. But it is yeah. a really great uh, pathway to, to try to investigate and see if we can actually do better in our own fields. And I mean, I, I guess that's what kind of the story last year, Peter. I mean, we, we had a record wheat crop and those heads numbers went down. Yeah. Yeah. So, so grain fill matters, right? That's the bottom line. Grain fill matters the most. I think, I think we have talked about that in Ontario now for, I bet you 10 years we've talked about green through grain fill and how much, how important that is. And, and that just proves it, Vern, 100%. Yeah. I'm going to scoot scoot ahead for the next slide for Dennis. And Dennis, you know, that is, you know, let's talk agronomy here. Um, You know, what do we learn from seeding rate versus seeding date in 2022? Yeah, so th- this is data from that top 20, bottom 20 analysis again. And on the left is the seeding date. Uh, so the top growers got their wheat planted on average on day 269, which I think is September 27th. Um, and the uh, the bottom group got it on um, day 280. So there's 11 days difference there. And you wouldn't think 11 days uh, is, is that much difference between them, um, but it could mean the difference between getting tillering in the fall and not. Um, and I'll show you a picture of that here in just a minute. Um, but the seeding rate is also the other thing. We, we've been doing some seeding rate by seeding date trials, and we're finding the exact same thing in our trials that is what is showing up here in this yen data. Um, we're finding that the impact of planting late um, can be very significant. And, you know, of all of the things from a management perspective that you can do, if you can plant on time. Now, I know there's a lot of things you have to fight the weather and getting the previous crop off and getting it dry and, and you know, having all the stars line up and whatnot to make that happen. But planting date is probably one of the most important things that you can do to achieve higher yield potential um, on your farm. The second thing there, the seeding rate, we noticed uh, that uh, seeding rates tend to be lower on the higher yield guys. They're letting the tillering um, take on a little bit more of a role um, in that in there. Uh, sometimes you push populations, and I, I have had guys tell me they're planting 2 to 2.4 million seeds per acre. Some guys even say three bushels to the acre still. Um, Boo. But so they, they yeah, they, 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 need to, they need some help. Um, but the, the higher you push populations, you know, you, you risk, you, you're trying to still hit that high number of heads per meter squared, um, but you bump seeding rate too high and you also risk lodging um, as well because those stems just won't be as strong. But let's go on to the next slide um, because that will really show how seeding date is important. So this comes from the seeding date study that I mentioned. This photo was taken on December 11th. Um, You can see on the left, uh, we started at planting date uh, September 15th and basically went every two weeks after that. So on September 15th and October 1, notice you can see some tillering on both of those plants. What happens when you jump from October 1 to October 15th? How many tillers do you have on October 15th? Don't have any, do you? And then the later you plant, you know, you're just barely emerged uh, or germinated on November 15th. So, you know, you, you think about hitting that sweet spot, you know, between October 1 and October 15th, a lot of people think, well, that's the prime wheat planting window. Well, if you're toward the latter end of that, how many tillers are you getting? You know, granted, this is this is a picture taken in one year and in, in conditions do vary um, from year to year as far as, you know, how warm it stays later into the fall. Uh, but this just really shows the importance that that planting date, and if you get beyond that window um, in, in the fall, 
you're you're just automatically going to have lower yield potential. And and if I could jump in for one second, Bern, because I think it's not just the the number of tillers, or or I guess what I want to say is, if I get late, I should be able to go to three million seeds per acre. And now I should have as many heads as September the 15th at a low seeding rate with the tillers. And I should be able to gain all that yield back if heads per meter squared was the only thing that mattered. But what I find most interesting is even when we go to those really high seeding rates on October the 15th, we can gain some yield back. At least our data would say we can. I don't know, Dennis, what your data says, but yep. but we we can never achieve the yields of that wheat that has tillered in the fall so the main head planted on october the 15th is not going to yield as much as a tiller head from the september 15th planting date and to me that that's a phenomenal piece of information to kind of to kind of stew over and think why would that be mm -hmm. Yeah, we're, we're finding the same thing in our in our research trials as well. Um, and yeah, you get a little bit of benefit. The later you plant, you get a little bit more benefit from a higher population. Um, but in, in the early you know plantings of September 15th and the October 1, really, we went from 0.8 million seeds to the acre all the way to 2.4 million. And we saw virtually no response um, to uh, the, the population or the seeding rate. Um, it, but the yields are, you know, September 15th, the highest, followed by October 1, October 15th, and so on as you go down, as you get later. Yeah. Uh, gentlemen, uh, we are pushing towards the clock. I'm going to take one more sponsor break, and then we're going to come back with, uh, with some more stuff. Jason? A big thank you to our sponsors for this episode of The Agronomist, Adama Canada, FMC Preschool, and The Wheat School. From varietal advancements, protein and yield management, precision farming, and on to marketing, Real Agriculture's Wheat School is a video series that tackles every facet of the wheat growing season in an engaging and informative format. The Wheat School is made possible by support from Syngenta Canada, CNM Seeds, and the Alberta Wheat Commission. Find out more at wheatschool.com. We are back. Um, you know, um, it's amazing the data that is provided to growers, you know, from the program. I want to throw up uh, a, another slide here, Jason, and I want Dennis to tell us, you know, about, you know, the final report here and, uh, and what it can, you know, what growers can see here. And, you know, obviously we've got a big number of growers coming into the program this year, you know, uh, you know, how attractive is this data, Dennis? Yeah, so the example that you have up here um, on the screen right now shows basically the complete fertility program um, for phosphorus for a given farm. Um, each of those box plots represent uh, either like the 153 is the soil sample. Um, so it tells you, you know, what the farm number was, and then you can see the range and the values from everybody else. The one right below that, that has the, uh, in yellow 0.29 and then 0.26, that's the um, growth stage 31 and 39 samples. Um, so we know kind of what, you know, early in the season, mid-season, what are we getting into the, into the crop? Um, and then we've got the straw uh, phosphorus and the uh, grain phosphorus, and you can see where those numbers ended up. Um, the, the, the box plot up on the top there, the 13.28, that's the amount of fertilizer applied. There's a nutrient removal table. Um, so we collect uh, the grain and the straw and we do nutrient analysis and we have that reported um, in this table for N, P, K, and S. Um, and so you can see, you know, how much nutrient was removed. This is a way of kind of post-mortem evaluation of the fertility program. And this is really important. And honestly, I think this is why they started the yen program in the uk uh because uh roger bradley will tell you that uh over the 10 years i think he said 80 percent of the growers have a fertility problem they just don't know about it and so the only way to identify it um is to do all of this testing and and so this is just some of the information um and on this particular slide this is phosphorus we have this data for all of the nutrients um so we report a lot of information back to the growers. It's a 30 page report. Um, and, uh, you know, the goal is to sit down with that report um, with an individual grower and say, okay, here's some things that we can see, you know, could be an issue. Um, ask questions about what happened and why, you know, why is this number where it is? 
um, and, and, you know, potentially make some changes for the next year. That That's really the value um, that, that growers get out of participating in the end program. And so, Bern, I want to, can I, I have to jump in here for a minute because yeah. like it just, so, so first off, Roger Bradley from the UK says that phosphorus, they're short phosphorus in, in their grain sample, that they need more phosphorus. Yet you look at this grower, his soil test value is 153. Like it's blow your doors off high. And so he's a good grower. I know him well. He only puts on five gallons of a liquid starter or 20 liters of a liquid starter, a 624.6. So he only puts on a little bit of phosphorus because he doesn't want to build his soil test phosphorus. How can you have that high a soil test phosphorus and have your tissue samples, both early and late tissue samples, below the 75 percentile 75th percentile right like like you just how or the 25th whichever way you look at that i guess it's actually the 25th but he's super low on his phosphorus concentration in the plant and how can that be and what does he do to try to improve his yields and i think part of the answer is that he's on a heavy clay soil and i don't think his roots explore the soil as well as they do on a silt loam and so I would say to this grower, let's play with, with 25 pounds of phosphorus with your wheat seed, or maybe even do a, a plot with 50 pounds of phosphorus, because that's what the wheat crop takes off, and see if we can't get those tissue samples up and see if that adds yield in this scenario, or doesn't it matter? But that, like, that's how the, the individual final report can help growers fine tune what they do. And that's exactly what Tim Lammyman did in the UK to get his record wheat yield. Now, some great insights for sure. Hey, I'm gonna move on to our last slide here on the data. Jason, if you can pop that up. And it really does look at that total crop input spend. And, you know, you know, you know, those those top growers, those green growers are they're spending more. But I mean I look at I look at that you know, that efficiency from a, from a you know a bushel production uh, from a grain production on the other side, and it really tells quite a story, Dennis. Yeah. So what what this total crop input spend is? This was calculated as the total cost of all of the nutrients that were applied, plus fungicide, insecticide. Uh, herbicide plant growth regulator. So it's basically the crop inputs. This does not factor in things like seed cost and combining costs and drying and transportation, you know, all of those kind of things. It's just the, you know, the things that seem to be the most variable. You know, some people say that these are the high yield guys, they're just throwing more money at it and they're not getting anything back out of it. So we just put some of these numbers together. Um, so the, the average of the top 20 was $352 per acre um, spend cost. Uh, the bottom 20 spent a little bit less, but when you divide it by their bushel yield, you can see that the the top guys um, are, are getting more value uh, per bushel in terms of, you know, their, their cost per bushel is lower uh, here. So, um, you know, I just wanted to address that a little bit. You know, people have asked. Oh, uh -oh. we've lost, we've lost, lost Dennis. Dennis. Well, but so I think, we, I think we, we, we get was back, saying Peter? Yeah, I think what he was saying is bang on that, that, you know, sometimes you, you need to spend money to make money, but you can also spend too much money. And Andy Timmerman's number two, uh, he, he, I think out of the yen has finally accepted that he does not need three fungicide applications on his wheat crop. And I think that's, that's kind of something cool as well, right? Just, mm -hmm. just lots of, lots of cool guidelines for where you can go in terms of trying to improve your your wheat economics and your wheat yields as well yeah for sure for sure I'm, we'll get dennis back here in a few minutes um just just pete i mean let's uh let's let's have a look at final question for you is the wheat crop that's in the ground right now um and uh, the conversation you're having now and in the spring um you know, you've seen two contrasting years. Yeah, tell us a little bit about the, the about 2023. Well, 2023 wheat went into the winter in just about ideal shape. We planted it sort of normal time frame. It was a, a 
quote unquote normal fall. And so I think we're in great shape. The one thing I don't like, wheat always likes to go into the like into the winter and get this blanket of snow. And if we could just say leave that blanket of snow there all winter long, the ground dries out underneath that blanket of snow and the roots are in dry soil and wheat likes that. We had a really warm January. I think Dennis did as well. I think we were third warmest January on record, something like that. Uh, that means that that surface soil where a lot of those wheat roots are, it was muckier than I would like. Those wheat roots were in wet, damp soil more than I would like. So that's not ideal. But from a tillering standpoint, I think we're in great shape. From a, a flooding standpoint, we haven't seen much of that. Just a little bit on the really heavy clays where there's no tile run wheat out there. I think we're set up for a tremendous crop if Mother Nature will just smile on us from here all the way till the end of June. What about your area, Dennis? 2023. Yeah, I agree. I think I think we're set up for a really good crop this year. Uh, we certainly have good stands. We have not had any problems with winter kill as of yet. Um, through these recent rains that we've had, we do have a few fields with some ponded areas, um, but so far it hasn't frozen. And uh, we've been so dry, uh, tile lines are barely running. And normally the tile lines are running by December of this, this it, uh, you know, over the winter. And uh, we're just recently starting to see some tiles starting to run now. So it's good that we're finally starting to recharge that uh, soil profile. But no, I think we're set up for just a banner crop year. And we, it has been warm. Uh, our, our yen collaborators in Kentucky, in southern Kentucky, they are at feet six to seven. They're already collecting their first tissue samples. Um, so, and, and, you know, Phil Needham down there, he was telling me today, he said, uh, this is about the earliest I think we've ever hit feet six, uh, which is growth stage 31, um, you know, in the season. So we're, we're headed for, you know, perhaps a real early season. And, uh, I, but I think we have some pretty good yield potential out there. And, and um, I see in the, in the chat, burn, I see that Dave Hooker wants yes. the prize to be for the lowest yielding wheat field, not for the highest yielding wheat field. No, Dave, we're not going to do that. I just yeah. not. <laughs> well, would, would you learn more if you were planting in, in, in a lower potential feed, as I think Dave was saying? Yeah, and, and so I don't think we know that, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what are the field limitations of those low yielding areas, and can we do something about them? Or is it just that, that we're not cycling mm -hmm. carbon as well? And, and that we're actually better to focus on the high yield areas. And, and Dave has had some chats, uh, some other comments in the chat ar around that. Where can we learn the most? I, I, I actually don't think we know where we can le learn the most, but I'm a high yield guy, Dave. Doggone it. We're going to go for high yield. Um, Dennis, last thing to you. I, I mean, you've got, let's see, we've got 170 growers coming into this program this year, up from, again, 98. I mean, what do you say to these, these growers coming in? Why? You know, I, I, it's a tremendous amount of work um, to, to run this program now. I know I asked me, you can tell me about that, but you know, what are you telling these growers, you know, from, a, from an expectations perspective when they, when they, when they join in? Yeah, so from an expectation standpoint, you know, it is a lot of work to collect the samples. You do have to be paying attention to the crop. We need you to collect the data timely. So when it's, you know, the right growth stage, you got to get out and get those samples. Um, we got to report those growth stages in the crop track program. Um, I know there's some folks that aren't particularly happy with crop track, which is our platform for data entry. Um, we Last year, we were building the system on the fly. Um, this year, the system's built. My plan is to be able to help growers understand how to get that data entered um, uh, better. And bear with us to the end of the season, because once you get your report and you sit down with your agronomist or us or whoever and start going through that data, and then you attend the wrap-up meeting at the end of the season, season and have a discussion with all the other growers and the agronomists and the supporters of, of the, the end program, that's where the real value in this will come out because it, it, in those wrap-up meetings that we had in Ontario and in Michigan, um, four-hour discussion about wheat agronomy. It was the most glorious thing I've ever been part of. <laughs> and and yeah. you dirty, rotten sod, you put them on days I couldn't attend. Oh. Man. Uh, just imagine a meat we'll show on your calendar earlier. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, final word to you, Peter, on, uh, and, you know, you know, the growers that you talk to and, and what they're, what they, you know, how their experience has been. 
So I think the proof is in the pudding. Almost every grower that enters the yen comes back for year two and year three, and they wouldn't do that if they didn't think that they were learning something out of this program. I think it's an incredible program. There's been lots in the chat about we should do it in Quebec, we should do it in the West, we should do it for other crops. Uh, and and I thought Dennis would have said, no, 180, <laughs> oh my gosh, how am I ever going to handle that? Like the amount of work that this is, is unbelievable. So, you know, huge thank you to to Dennis, to Sophie Krolikowski, Joanna Fallings, Josh Naselski, the, the whole team that puts this together. It, it's a ton of work. And to, the, the, some people did note there's no support from seed companies or other companies yet. Well, there actually is, but it's at a, a bit of a lower level. And, and we haven't really gone that way the way that they have in the UK yet. But if, if we have to hire more people to do it, and that's what, I mean, gosh, Dennis, you can only do so much. It gets too big. We've got to hire more people. We need more support. But it's it's just such a learning opportunity. You just have to be part of it. Yep. Um, Agreed. Speaking of going forward, we uh, on the Wheat School, we have two episodes coming up. Jay, you can push those last two slides up for me. We... Uh, Peter has just wrapped up an interview with uh, Andy Timmermans, and we are going to have that. Uh, well, actually, we're going to do that this week, and then we are going to run that episode uh, in the following week. And we'll be reaching out to Jeff Crone, which is our last slide. Jeff from Michigan. We will we'd love to have uh, Jeff on to tell his story. So look for both of those as we move forward, um, guys. Uh, David Hooker just said in the uh, in the chat, "Hey, can we go till ten? I I'd love to, but we are up against the clock. I think we got like two minutes left. So um, we're going to wrap it up now, guys. Um, great conversations. I, I'm, there's no reason why we can't come back a little later in the season if you fellows would hang out again and, uh, and, and dig into this a little later um, and have another conversation. But uh, as we wrap up, I just want to do one last shout-out to our sponsors, uh, Adam McCannama. Adam of Canada, uh, FMC Preschool, and the Wheat School. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for every a great chat. Uh, Peter, you got those folks going, and it was uh, lots of stuff going on there for sure. Lots of conversations. More to come on The Agronomist. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Uh, Lindsay will be back next week, and uh, I'm, I don't know if we'll have the music. She may change it again. We'll see. Take care. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Thanks. <laughs>